get uh, situated here and and uh, maybe I should ask you to do what they told me yesterday on the plane buckle up <laughs> uh, we may be I, I hope you're not in too big a hurry I I don't want to deal with these issues in such a frantic way that we don't uh, calm down and and uh, move our way into this truth tonight and so I will appreciate your prayers and what a good Sunday night crowd that we're going to uh, begin the evening services with and I'm uh, so glad that you're here. Now if uh, you were uh, looking for the person that makes our building so wonderfully lit you would have to go back and thank Thomas Edison for the first light bulb. Somebody said if it wasn't for Thomas Edison, we'd have to watch our TVs in the dark. <laughs> that may not be true, but I, I like the sentiment of that. Uh, if you're going to do what I did yesterday, and I'm thankful I wasn't on this rig, you have the right brothers to appreciate that in just a little over a hundred years, here we are traveling all over the country carrying our bags with us. Uh, I'm not talking about our companions either, all right? I'm talking about our luggage. Uh, it's amazing that from coast to coast and from continent to continent, we travel now at great speeds and heights. And it all started with those two guys right there. And uh, thank God for that. And uh, just a, no, uh, no commercial here for Fords, but... Uh, it was Henry Ford that put the automobile industry in fast mode by giving us this wonderful uh, thought that he had that we can do a better job, we can do a faster job. And the assembly line vehicle started with Henry Ford back in 19 and 13. And from there, we've uh, been out on the road. Uh, it was one humorist that said the reason we built so many roads in Texas in the 1900s was so that people could get to church. Well, I wish that were so today. I wish everybody understood that we have what we have to, to get into church. But tonight I want to begin at the beginning. If you will, turn in a Bible to Matthew chapter 16 because if you're going to study the first church you're going to need to study the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the first mention of the word church is found right here in Matthew chapter 16. Now if you're going to study the Bible and what is called the science of hermeneutics, and that's the science of Bible interpretation, it's always a good thing to look at the first mention of any major word in the Bible and from that begin to move out in your understanding of what that word represents. And that's what we're going to do tonight and throughout the course of this week. We're going to look at some major words and their location in the Bible. And there's no greater uh, word on the church than right here in Matthew 16. Let's uh, put it in context by begin reading in verse 13. When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And some say, Thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others Jeremiah, or, covering all bases, one of the prophets. 
He said unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered, and oh, we we usually would want to stop right here and hold on because you don't know what he's going to say. He uh, had very little filter between his mind and his mouth, and he would often regret what he said. But I'm telling you, Simon Peter hit a home run with the bases loaded in the bottom of the ninth right here. Pay attention. He's going to say something really great. Blessed art, Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. Now Jesus is still speaking. And I say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. I want to uh, give this particular study the title of the beginning of New Testament churches. The beginning of New Testament churches. Where did they begin and who began them and how can we understand better of churches now 2,000 years removed from the church that Jesus Christ started. Well, if you want to look at this passage, you'll see that Jesus himself planted the first church. He said, I will build my church. He's the source of the New Testament, the original New Testament church. The Bible also says that he possesses that church. He said, I will build my church. He didn't say, you will build my church or I will build your church. He said, I will build my church. And so Jesus Christ is willing to put his signature on what he did and say, that's mine. I love that personal pronoun. I've already uh, bent the ear of some of uh, uh, the Smith family over here about my grandchildren. And if you don't... uh, get around me very long, you'll know that, uh, that I will uh, talk about them because I love who they are and what they are and where they're headed. And no doubt Jesus Christ himself with great personal satisfaction and understanding, he talked about his own possession, his, his church. And then also the Bible tells us that he purchased the church with his own blood in Acts chapter 20. In verse number 28, not only is our redemption purchased by his own blood, but also his congregations have been purchased at great price. And then uh, the Bible says that he presides over the church. He's the head of the church. There's not an earthly head that uh, presides over the church. And we'll talk more about the, the government of the church in the next session But uh, the only one who rightfully governs any church is Jesus Christ. He's the Lord and head of the church. And then also the Bible will tell us that Jesus is present here. I don't know how many were here today, but we need to make sure we always add one more. Jesus is here. He's always present with his people. In Revelation chapter 1, you find him walking in the midst of his churches. He understands what this church is going through. You're not left to imagine how that you can fix your problems and 
and increase whatever you need to increase because Jesus Christ is here. And thank God, He also perpetuates the church. For 2,000 years since the original church was built by Jesus, Jesus said, the gates of hell shall not prevail against my church. Amen to that. And uh, thank you for that little bit of excitement. I hope you don't tamp that down. Turn it loose. Be excited about the fact that you're in one of those kinds of churches. And uh, thank God for that. Because the church was built by Jesus. It was built on Jesus. And bless God, it's built for Jesus. This is, this is His house. This is His church. This is what He has done. And He's to be praised for that. And so... My first point, now if you're keeping up, I'll try to identify them so you can find the flow of it. And when we get to, to point number four, get happy, okay? Because that'll be closing in on the last part of the first session. Number one, I want you to understand that the origin of the New Testament church is divine and not human. That is, what we know and believe is that the very Son of God, identified by Peter... In this passage, in Matthew chapter 16, it's called the, the Christ, the anointed, the Son of God. He's the one who originated, who built, who put on this earth the first church. Now, a lot of churches are happy to know that they were started by some men uh, many years later than what you have in the, the first century with our Savior. and uh, But... But, but our church, I'm talking about the New Testament church, began with Jesus. And so, if you will, when you start looking for church truth, you need to make sure you don't go back in the Old Testament because the church isn't an Old Testament institution. It's a New Testament institution. It starts in the New Testament. Now, remember this morning, amen, is go on to the next point. And amen to that. I know you know that. There is a verse in Acts 7 that talks about the church in the wilderness. And that simply means the congregation of the nation of Israel. It did not mean a New Testament church. The church is a New Testament institution. The church was founded by Jesus Christ during his personal ministry. L.R. Scarborough, by the way, the verses are one that you've studied so many times. Uh, Mark 6, Luke uh, 6, 1 Corinthians 12, 28. When Jesus set aside the apostles after a night of prayer, he, uh, from his uh, disciples, ordained 12 who would be apostles. And out of that, uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 28 said that God had set some in the church first apostles. And so the Bible answers how we know when the church was started, it was started after a night of prayer with the ministry of Jesus. And by and large, for hundreds of years, it was understood that no man started the church of Jesus. Jesus started the church himself. Now, L.R. Scarborough, who was the second president of Southwestern Seminary in my town in Fort Worth, Texas, said this. It is certainly true that Christ, in his own personal ministry, established his church. Now, this is a Southern Baptist leader in the early 1900s that believed what I believe. Is that what you believe? 
And if not, then you can wait till the end of the week and then maybe you'll believe it. But L.R. Scarborough, and I, I don't make any of this up, and just in research, you'll find out that there's been a great shift in Baptist churches away from this. Roy Mason, in his book, The Church Jesus Built, says, out of the material prepared by John the Baptist, Jesus organized and founded his church during the days of his personal ministry here on the earth. I'm saying the same thing over and over again. And you say, well, preacher, why would you just repeat yourself? Because you and I need the repetition. We also need to realize that we're not the only ones that believe these things. There are other people who have believed them. There are people who believe them. And there's, there's some people that ought to believe them. And uh, hopefully this will reinforce that in your mind as well. The church was not founded on the day of Pentecost by the Holy Spirit. Now, I won't get into detail on this. You can find other resources that will help you understand that. But generally today, most all of the study Bibles and all of the reference materials that are written by modern authors believe that somehow the church appeared out of nothing on the day of Pentecost. Amazing. And yet uh, we, we know differently from that because really what happened on the day of Pentecost was not the formation of the church but the confirmation of the church. You remember when the tabernacle was uh, put together and they were waiting to have their first uh, service inside that. God gave a confirmation that this is my house. Amen. And then when the temple replaced that and everybody was uh, waiting to have that first day in the temple, the glory of God filled that house and a holy, uh, a holy cloud uh, was over that as confirmation that this is now my house. And on the day of Pentecost... There was another cloud that came over the new house of God, and that's the church of Jesus Christ. That's what that's, uh, these are all historical confirmations of God's houses during the centuries. The Father envisioned the church, the Son equipped the church, and the Holy Spirit empowered the church. Three very important statements about the church. Number two, by you're listening so fast tonight. We have slower people in Texas. Y'all know that, don't you? Hey, I can make fun of us because I'm a lifelong Texan, as are many of my ancestors. Well, secondly, the nature of the New Testament church is local and visible, not universal and Invisible. I had the privilege of preaching in a conference with Gray Allison, who was the uh, founder and president emeritus of uh, Mid America uh, Seminary in Memphis, Tennessee. And he was uh, into his way into his 90s before he died just a year or so ago. And Dr. Allison uh, said in one of his publications that. There is no other sense of that word of ecclesia than a local assembly. And he went into great explanation about the fact that it would not have been understood in any other way than in a local visible setting. 
See, he was an old-time Baptist. And uh, the older I get, I'm becoming an old-time Baptist as well. Bob Pearl, who pastors a considerably large Southern Baptist church in my town, uh, wrote a book entitled uh, The uh, Vanishing Church. And in that, he makes this remark. He said, the ecclesia is a local church. This is what Christ meant when he used the word with the apostles. Uh, excuse me, that's, that's Gray Allison. Let, let me, let me excuse me, I'm, I'm just trying to go so fast. My mind is, is uh, getting ahead of myself. Let me, just, let me just pause for a moment. Okay, I'm okay now. <laughs> hey, I'm glad I have thoughts and know it at my age. There are things that come into my mind like the like the, the, the Bermuda Triangle. They go in and never come out. So be thankful that I'm on one of my better days. Let me, let me just say something about when I refer to the local church. I want you to understand that there's no other kind. And I only use that term to clarify for those who may think there is some other kind. It's a redundancy to use the word local church. It's like using the phrase uh, widow woman. Well, if she's a widow, she's a a woman. Uh, It's like uh, using free gift. If it's a gift, it's free. You can can repeat all those kind of redundancies, but, but for the sake of this seminar and for those who are generally uninformed about it, there is only one kind of church, and that's a local church. And so uh, I, I do that, and then thank you for letting me catch back up now. Here's, here's Dr. Pearl here. Why all the debate about the distinction between the universal and local church? Why spend so much time on the etymology of ecclesia and its uses in the New Testament? The reason is simple. Misunderstanding the New Testament concept of the church diminishes the importance of the local church to the individual believer. When the local church is trumped by the universal church, personal accountability is minimized. Christian growth is stunted, and practically the local church vanishes. That's the title of his book. People move from church to church to bless each congregation with their gifts and insights only to become spiritual pygmies. The work of God in this world is done primarily through Local, the local congregation, that is God's plan. Now, Dr. Pearl probably has a soft belief in universal church, but he understands the overwhelming importance of understanding truth about what a local church is. It's God's predominant means of doing His work. Now, B.H. Carroll said this, the whole modern Baptist idea of a now existent universal invisible church, this is 1900, was borrowed from pedo-Baptist. And that's not a term we use. That simply means those who advocate or practice infant sprinkling. He said uh, it comes from their uh, confessions of faith in the Reformation times and the pedo-Baptist and devised it to offset the equally erroneous idea of the Romanist universal visible church. Now listen to Dr. Carroll. 
We need to be well indoctrinated on this point because the error is not harmless. It is used to depreciate Christ's earth church, the pillar and ground of the truth. Now there's another term you can use, the earth church. This is where the church is located. It's, it's on the church and thank God for that. And this predominantly has been the understanding among Baptists for centuries that the church in the Bible is a local visible church. Now, one of the earliest confessions of faith written for Baptists and by Baptists was in 1833 in the Hampshire, New Hampshire Confession of Faith, and there is no mention of a universal church in it, only a local church, only the officers in the church and only the ordinances in the church, no universal mention at all. One of the first... Uh, comprehensive confessions of faith among Southern Baptists was in 1925 in the Baptist Faith and Message and no universal church mentioned in that only a local and visible church is referenced. In 1963, this phrase was added in the Southern Baptist Confession of Faith. The church is the body of Christ which includes all the redeemed of all the ages. Now, Herschel Hobbs, who was the pastor of the First Baptist Church of Oklahoma City, said that this was the first major change in ecclesiology among Baptists in 150 years. And he was proud of it. I think he will have a revision of that at the judgment seat of Christ because there's nothing to be proud of the fact that somehow there was now a redefinition of what a New Testament church was. And so it continued in the 2000 Baptist Faith and Message, where it says that the New Testament speaks also of the church as being the body of Christ, which includes all the redeemed of all the ages, believers from every tribe and tongue and people and nations. Now come on Tuesday night, I'm going to be speaking on in search of the body of Christ. Now think about these statements. They have the body of Christ, they have the body of Christ being built by the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, but now retroactively all believers are put into it. Now I don't know when and how that happened. There's no reference in the Bible, but somehow they've reorganized the, uh, the uh, deck chairs on the Titanic. It doesn't make a lot of logical sense to place all believers in something that is universally understood as a New Testament truth. And so here's where I stand and here is where many Baptists that you know stand, including your pastor, and that is we take a local church position only. Local church position only. And I'm going to give you five quick advantages for that. And one is that it's really what the word means. Ecclesia. It means a local... It, because even, even in the book of Acts in chapter 19, it's used of a local governmental assembly. And so the word itself has to do with a local group of people, a local assembly of people. And so if you do any etymology at all, and you look at the root of a word, and what does it mean, and how is it used, the only conclusion you can come with 
uh, come to is that it's a, it's a local understanding. Number two, it reinforces the compelling need for church membership. There's no such thing as automatic membership in some kind of invisible universal something, but rather those who believe need to submit themselves for baptism, thus to be added to a local congregation. Number three, it also exposes the danger of interdenominationalism and ecumenicalism. Those terms will be explained in the last session. If you find me mentioning other sessions, that is an unapologetic advertisement. Come to those meetings. Come to all the meetings and to be here for the explanation of some of those. Number four, it also underscores the church's complete autonomy and dependence on Christ. Now, I'm glad that you and I can have fellowship. I can be here and be uh, honored to be in the pulpit of this great church and this great pastor. Uh, but this church is not connected to my church. We voluntarily know each other and, and pray for each other. But every church in itself is completely self-governing. And as such, we are dependent solely in in St. Clair, Missouri, you're dependent solely upon the Lord Jesus Christ and not some kind of organization other than the great heavenly assembly of God's people here in this location. And then number five, it places the need to maintain doctrinal purity on each congregation. I've got a I've got a buddy. I, I don't. This he does. He's not on Facebook, so he's not going to be on it. He's one of my golfing buddies. He's been in, was in my wedding. We've been we've been friends for all these years now. You can do the math. Uh, uh, but he's a Methodist, and his church hasn't even been meeting since COVID at all. They haven't even had one service in the Methodist church that he goes to. I the other day I was out in the golf course. I said, "Hey, here's water. What does hinder me to be baptized?" Uh, but uh, uh, that's a joke. That's really not true. We, we don't have any organizational headquarters that tells us what our positions are. We, we're, we're to maintain that. Not just your pastor. I believe he's the, the guardian, the gateway keeper maybe to doctrine in this church. But everybody in the church needs to know the doctrine. You need to know what you believe. And it's important because uh, in this little this little uh, COVID bubble that we're in here, we can feel real comfortable. We've got a, we've got a dependable and, and trustworthy pastor who will tell me what's the truth. Well, that's great, but you need to know the truth. You need to make sure you're pressing in to what you're listening to and quit coming to church without something to write some notes down with and get into the Bible and write some things that God can impress on your heart to understand. Boy, I'm, I'm so glad. I'm going to take a time out right here and just get happy, all right? I'm no longer a pastor. I now have the title of being a pester. So I can go anywhere, make all kinds of remarks, and I have a return uh, ticket to Fort Worth on Thursday. And uh, so I, I get to plow ground that sometimes uh, guys just uh, avoid. And uh, so... Uh, and there, I'm so little, people wouldn't pick on me. They would hurt me real quick. So uh, anyway. All right, we're at number three now. Remember, we were looking for another number bigger than that. Here's number three. 
the rooted fruit of the New Testament church is historical and not modern. If you're going to study a church, you're going to need to get further back into, into history than what happened a century ago or two or three centuries ago. You're going to need to go back a little bit further than that, and that's been the Baptist position. They even haven't had to prove it. They believed it. And I'll tell you a reason in just a minute why they believed it. John Broadus, who was a president at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, said, speaking of death, all earthly things go down through these dread gates, but Christ's church, for which he gave himself, will never cease to exist. There will always be Christians in the world. This is a bold prediction for a homeless teacher with a handful of followers. Can you imagine projecting that in the world? Guys, just hang on. Matter of fact, if you look in the, the Great Commission, he was talking to us as well as to the apostles. Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the world. He's talking about us. We're now at the end of the world, and we're in the commission just like the original apostles were. Man. Oh, man, I hope I took my medicine. I'm feeling good tonight, man, I'm telling you. I, I love preaching about these things because it helps people to realize that we're not some kind of off-brand, throwaway, goofy bunch of people other than me. Uh, we're, we're God's people. We're God's people that represents the Savior Himself. And uh, nothing to be ashamed about that at all. S.H. Ford, who is a... Baptist historian said succession among Baptists is not a linked chain of churches or ministers uninterrupted and traceable at this dis distinct day. The true and defensible doctrine is that baptized believers have existed in every age since John baptized in Jordan, now listen, and have met as a baptized congregation in covenant and fellowship where an opportunity permitted. There have been churches in every age. There have been churches in every age that could have baptized you if you had lived in those ages and you would have received scriptural baptism. Amen to that. This is the, this is the, this is the belief of L.R. Scarborough. Without boast or pride, but with joy and certainty, Baptists trace their lineage back to the ancient and honorable beginning, to the, to the meeting of John, the forerunner, and Jesus in the holy baptizing scene in the Jordan River. Through the centuries, sometimes by indistinct lines, sometimes by definite groups and mighty doctrines, they profess love for and loyalty to the teachings and principles which Christ gave to the apostolic group and are recorded in the New Testament. I just love these people that wrote down good stuff. As soon as I start thinking some, I'll do my own. But this is a great, these are great, these are great quotes. You're, you're not by yourself. You're not this small congregation on some uh, road off of the interstate. You're among God's people. You're among God's churches. We should thank God for that. I'm ashamed to say that most modern Baptists have taken what was discarded, uh, began actually by a man by the name of William Whitsitt. William Whitsitt was also the president at Southern 
Seminary in Louisville, and he came up with this novel idea, wrote about it in uh, Johnson's Universal Encyclopedia in 1893, that uh, Baptists really didn't appear until 1644. And they began in England. Now, indeed, the name Baptist appears in his history as that. But uh, Mr. Whitsitt had uh, made a statement that was confounding to so many of his modern Baptist people. He taught that up till 1641, all Baptists employed sprinkling and pouring as the mode of baptism, and that in no case immersion took place among American Baptists before 1644. Now here's a a Ph.D., uh, a man who's a professor, a president actually, uh, more than just a a professor, but a president of a major uh, seminary making this statement. Now, how was it received? Well, not well. Not well. He got fired. The Baptist rose up and said, that's not what we would believe. That's not what we believe. We believe that Christ started the church and perpetuated that church in every age. I'll speak more about that on the Wednesday session. You you must come back for that because I'll preach about a little bit more about understanding about what we believe about succession, about perpetuity, about why we believe churches have always existed, even sometimes though there's not a history of it, a human history. And I'll uh, say that more about that. D.B. Ray, who was a great Baptist, an apologist, a theologian, said that no man... Now living, we'll see the end of the hurt. Dr. Whitsitt has done the Baptist no matter how often his position is disproved. And that's happening today in modern seminaries today. If you go to the average modern Baptist seminary, they have a Protestant view of the origin of, the, of, of Baptist people. They believe that they are connected to the Anabaptists, but the Anabaptists were not connected to any other group uh, theologically or or with ecclesiology. Okay, get happy. Number four is here. We're doing great tonight, too. I'm going to be able to have uh, trimmed a little bit of my... I was going to say whatever, but anyway. Uh, The importance of the New Testament church is essential and not optional. Essential. Now, we we are... uh, We're... In the COVID world, they're trying to figure out what's essential, right? Guess what? Liquor stores, uh, Home Depot, and a few more things that were determined essential while churches were told, you're not essential. (laughs) Well, they've been wrong about a lot of stuff. They've been more wrong than right in this whole thing about what's essential. And you know, eventually what's happened is that which was thought to be non-essential has now become under attack by the government and uh, even in the violation of the uh, Constitution of the United States. Well, I'm, I'm glad to know that you and I believe that the church is essential. Gary Thomas, who wrote a book on authentic faith, said this, it may seem shocking to some, but biblically living for God means living for His church. What's shocking to me 
is that anybody who reads the Bible, that that would be shocking to them. For Gary Thomas to say, now this is going to shock some of you, but if you're going to live for God, you're going to have to find a church and get in it and serve God there. What else is there? What other organization has been left on the earth to do God's work other than a local, visible New Testament church? Now think about it. Anytime there was an assembling of believers, it was a church assembly in the Bible. I mean, they didn't have their own little personal group that they were doing coffee on Tuesday morning down at uh, uh, Harry's Coffee Shop. I'm sure you don't have a Starbucks here, so I won't bother you with that. If it was an assembled bunch of believers, it was a church assembly. If it was uh, for Christian fellowship, it was a church fellowship. If it was a people gathering for prayer, it was a church prayer meeting. If it was to do Bible study, it was a church Bible study. Let me, let me take a moment here. The reason there's so much confusion in the, the world of churches today is they've stopped getting their singular source of Bible teaching from their pastor and they're now listening to a hundred other guys that have a hundred different opinions and I'm going to tell you to cut it out. Quit listening to all these people who have no accountability to anyone else. Anytime you disagree with your pastor, just say, hey, I need to know better. I don't know why you take that position. Try that with some of the guys on TV. Put a $100 bill and you'll probably get something back. Hey, I'm just telling you, all this crazy stuff that we see coming out from people, all their special prophecies or Beth Moore wanting to be as much a preacher in a Baptist church as any other pastor. That's all a bunch of confusion that started by people who quit going to church, listening to their pastor and, and codifying what they believe out of their own church rather than a bunch of other nonsense. That's a Greek word that means baloney. If you, if you had a Christian ministry, it was a church ministry. If you had a spiritual gift, it was operated inside a church. There's no spiritual gift in the Bible that was not understood to be operated under the authority and supervision of a New Testament church. By the way, Paul corrected it when it was misused in a church. Spiritual authority was really church authority. Giving money was church money. They laid it at the apostles' feet. And then there was an organization created within the church to, to, to uh, spread that out among those who had need, like the uh, widows. If it was a, doing a work for God, it was church work. If it was missionary work, guess where it was done? Through a church. I mean, Acts 13 is a great pattern for doing mission work, and it's always in and out of and under the supervision of a sending, supporting, sponsoring church. Amen. Let me conclude with a statement. I'm sure I quoted this from somebody. I've, I've usually tried to give credit, uh, but... Uh, I don't know who this one was said by, so I said it here tonight, okay? 
Those who hold historic Baptist beliefs must prize them, preach them, practice them, protect them, preserve them, and propagate them, and don't be angry or ashamed of it. We've got, to, we've got to make sure that our churches, I'm talking about the large churches over which God has placed pastors to direct and for those who are members, and that's what I am now. I'm a church member. I have no authority other than what the church has graciously allowed me to come and represent them here. I want to do it well. I, I am who I am. Uh, so, uh, But they are very thoughtful to do that. But... Uh, we need to raise up a new group of Baptists. We need, to, we need to make sure that we're ensuring not only in these young couples that I see in the building that have some little rascals there that they're raising, that God bless you, raise them up as Baptist people and know why you believe it and stand for it and be gracious about it to those that you have an opportunity to influence. Now we're going to have a a little bit of a time of song and just a little bit of a break. I'm giving you back uh, 11 minutes and I want to take that back in the next session. <laughs>